Welcome back to another episode at Economics Design. Today we're going to dive a little bit into understanding Uniswap v3. We're going to talk about the seven different changes as well as the economic impact or the design impact to understanding what's going on in Uniswap. Once again, this is not investment advice, this is purely educational. We'll cover three things today. The first one is, what is Uniswap? Just a quick recap and refresher for anyone new in the space. The seven changes to Uniswap version 3 and some concluding opinions. So, what is Uniswap? We talked about Uniswap before and we talked about how it is a decentralized exchange, focusing on spot rates. So, in Uniswap version 1, it was trading all against ETH. So, if I want to create a pool, I'm always trading with the pool. So, which is the main difference between the between exchanges like NASDAQ or the Singapore Stock Exchange, the London Stock Exchange, the Shanghai Stock Exchange. The thing, because in those stock exchanges, you're trading with someone else. And they could be market makers or they could be buyers and sellers. In a decentralized exchange, you're always trading with the protocol, with the pool, with the smart contract. And how it does that, it aggregates different, it aggregates assets together into a pool, and then you're always trading with the pool. And it focuses on spot rate. So what is the, spot, the rate right now for Lisa token or economic design token or ETH token? In version one of Uniswap, it was doing, it was constantly trading. This pool is trading between ETH and a token. Let's say Lisa token and ETH. In version two, it allows you to trade with any kind of tokens. It doesn't have to be paired with ETH. So it could be stuff like Lisa token versus economic design tokens or economics token versus design tokens. It's fine. Everything goes into the pool. The pool has these kind of, you can have two different types of tokens. It doesn't have to be ETH. And now version three, that's what we're going to talk about. It goes a little bit further to mix that NASDAQ version of trading together with the decentralized exchange version of trading. So before we go a little bit deeper and understand what version three is about, let's understand what is the market share and what is the use case and user base of Uniswap. You can see that Uniswap still takes the majority of decentralized exchanges by volume. This is by Dune Analytics, in which more than 60% of, of exchanges is done on Uniswap. And then we have the second runner-up is, is SushiSwap and then Curve. And, and then OX native. So this data was taken about a month ago or a little bit more than that. And things are changing quite a bit already. So I think if I'm not wrong, Bangkok has, has taken quite a bit right now. Bangkok is definitely in the top five. It might be in the top three as well. And so the two big ones will be Uniswap and SushiSwap. These are all, you know, they're, they're all decentralized exchanges but they, are, they have differentiating factors on its own. So that's always very very nice to see that the base infrastructure is still is the same, but the way they tweak it, the way they, they play around with it is different. So if you look at the growth rate of, of DeFi users, in general, for the DeFi users over time, it has grown exponentially, as you can see. And the amount of unique addresses that's made has increased exponentially as well. Sure, there, there are going to be users with multiple addresses, which is completely fine, but not everyone, have, not everyone has multiple addresses. So in general, the growth of DeFi is just exploding. And that really correlates very well to the number of Uniswap users over time. 
because it's also a hockey stick kind of exponential growth. And as you can see, more DeFi users coming into the space, you know, the, the more they're also likely to want to use Uniswap, which makes sense because there are, there are mainly two ways to get into the crypto space, the DeFi space. Number one, you already have DeFi tokens. So stuff like I'm paid in some DeFi tokens and I have access to DeFi protocols directly. The second way is where you have, you need to find a way to get into the system. So it could be lending borrowing or it could be exchange. So I have ETH. I can't use ETH directly on all of these platforms because ETH is not ERC20. You need to change it to Rep ETH to be interacting with all of these systems. Or you can turn ETH into some other asset like the Lisa coin or whatever coin to be entering all these different DeFi ecosystems. So think about it as Uniswap or these different decentralized exchanges being the gatekeeper to letting people in. So as more users increase in the space, the more usability of these protocols as well. So how does the protocol work? I had a very, very long video of that and link it up. The general idea is that you have this thing called K as a constant. So K for constant. How it, how it understands is the, the constant is defined by the, the quantity, the number of Visa tokens as well as ETH tokens. So, or two different assets. The total quantity of them. If you multiply them together, that's the constant. So when one goes down, the other goes up, and that's how you trade with each other. So that's trading in terms of quantity. What about price? So price, in the price perspective, they're always priced against the price relative to each other. So if, the, if my pool, if my decentralized exchange has the Lisa token and the ETH token, then the price of Lisa is priced in ETH and the price of ETH is priced in Lisa tokens. You're not going to get something like the design token. You, you're not going to get the design token to value ETH and value the Lisa token. Just doesn't make sense. So they're priced against each other. And the constant ratio that we're talking about here is the ratio is, is the, the constant, which is dividing. So the constant is always the same. And the constant is a multiplication of the quantity of Lisa and the quantity of ETH. And so to get the quantity of whatever, you just move the math around. So this is where the problem comes in. Because if we want to understand the price of, let's say the price of Lisa token, we have to put it relative to ETH. And if you look at what, how do you value the price of Lisa tokens, you get, how do you get the quantity, the, the quantity change in Lisa tokens, you get a constant divided by ETH. Remember, it's Lisa times ETH equals constant. So when you want to get Lisa, you get you, you get both sides divided by ETH. So you get Lisa on this side and you get K over ETH on this side. So that's how you get the quantity change of Lisa and ETH. So if you get a if you get if you do like a first order derivative of it, then you will realize that the quantity change of Lisa is very is is tied to um, one over ETH squared. So in general, it just means that when ETH changes, it affects when the quantity of ETH changes, it affects the Lisa token very, very much because it's a squared. And what does it mean? It means that there, as the trade gets larger, as the change in ETH gets larger, as we can see, and it is now squared, that means the impact to the number of Lisa tokens increases.
And so we, that's how we get slippage in large trade. Because in large trade, your change in E is larger, square it, and then the change in Lisa will be much larger. And that large change is where you have your large slippage. Slippage is the difference between the amount you're supposed to receive versus the amount you actually receive. So for small amount of tokens, the change is small, right? Because if your change is one, one square is still one. But if your change is 10 and 10 square is one of 100. So, or 10 square is 100. So the square root is actually a, a, a very important impact because it blows up the, the entire function. So it means that as much as we want to say that k is constant, the changes, the interaction, the relationship between the two tokens in that constant pool is affecting each other in a very significant way as trade gets larger and larger. So this brings to the point that we want to talk about today, which is the version 3, Uniswap version 3. Because this change, this constant change, is something that exists, and we see them in the Uniswap version 1, we see that in Uniswap version 2. And the problem is that you've got slippage on large trade, and the, the other problem is that you have impermanent loss, greater chances of impermanent loss. So in version 3, that's what Uniswap is trying to change, that's what Uniswap is trying to improve. So the general idea of what Uniswap is doing, is a Uniswap version 3 is doing, is that it mixes decentralized market maker with central limit order books, CLOP, C-L-O-B. So decentralized market maker is the, the general thing that you see all the time, which is these, these transactions. So if you go to Uniswap trade, you get to see the transactions where people are swapping RepB to USDC or USDC to RepB, uh, RepBTC, and this is the trade. So instead of having the buyer side and seller side, you're just trading for each other within the pool. So you're trading with the contract. The clock method, the central limit order book, this is a screenshot that I got, and you're trading, you're trading a BNB, which is the Binance token, with BUSD, which is the Binance US dollar. But anyway, that's not the point. The point is that you can see this order book where you can see the red and the green. The red are people selling at what price? The green is the, the price that people are selling at. So people are just writing in the price, you know? I want to sell it at this price. I want to buy it at this price. So it lists, lists down. And unlike Uniswap, where it trades against the contract, trades against the pool, it's just listed over there. And machines will figure out, okay, this person wants to buy at 500. This person wants to sell at 500. So I'm going to pair them up. Then that's how you pair things off. That's as, as easy as, as it is. So this, is, this idea of you want to trade at this price and the idea where you can trade with the smart contract is what Uniswap is trying to do. It's trying to take these two worlds together, put them together and put in the version 3 ecosystem defined with code. How cool is that? So we're going to talk about seven different, seven different um, changes to Uniswap version 3. So the first one is force, uh, focus liquidity. So remember I mentioned that in the clock method, the central limit order book, you can define that I want to buy this at 500 bucks. And I can also define, I want to only trade a specific range. So $501, no, yeah, $499 and $501. So I have that small range that I only want to trade at. Or it could be in stable coins, for instance. In stable coins, you know that it's more or less $1. 
and your risk tolerance is 1%. So you can tell the smart contract and tell Uniswap version 3 to say that, okay, this is a Uniswap, uh, this is a DAI and USDC pool, and I only want to provide liquidity or the range of 99 cents and $1 one cent. Which makes sense because it's a stable coin. It's not going to be $2. If it's, some, if it's $2, then it's kind of broken. So I'm only going to trade I'm going to focus my liquidity only between 99 cents and $1 one cent. So I'm only providing liquidity in this range. And if you look at the little graph, that, that range is basically the area under the box, the shaded area. That's how you do your calculation. And what's the benefit of this? The benefit is that firstly, you have capital only in this specific range, which is good because you, you're only basically providing capital within this range that you're confident in that you know prices won't, go, won't deviate too much from. And the second thing is that you're concentrating your depth within that range. So we, remember we talked about, when we talk about above where the K for constant and the, the number of change in ETH would affect the number of changes in Visa tokens, which causes slippage in large trade. So this is where it becomes quite useful because we're going to make the, the pool very, very deep with a lot of tokens available so that large trade is large relative to the depth of the pool. So if the pool is very, very large, then your large trade might not be so significant. So for example, if your pool only has a thousand tokens and you want to trade 900 tokens, that's 90% capacity, 90% utilization, and you have huge slippage. Whereas if you're still trading 900, but your pool is a million tokens, then the 900 is not going to be so significant, right? It doesn't, it wouldn't, you wouldn't have that large slippage. So that's the idea. Which brings me to the second point of capital efficiency. Because in general, if let's say we're doing USDC and DAI, the prices won't change too much between 99 cents and $1.01. One cent. So you have a very tight range that you're providing liquidity for. So if let's say you're providing liquidity and liquidity spreads across, if you look at the graph, it spreads across all price ranges, then the price ranges, let's say of $2, it's not working for you because as a liquidity provider, you only want to be providing liquidity where people will be trading at, and then you will get shares of the profits, right? You will get part of that revenue, the transaction fees, so you get to earn profits. And by providing liquidity for, let's say, $2, nobody is going to trade two die for one USDC. It just doesn't make sense. So by allocating some of your capital over there, it's just a waste of capital. It's capital inefficient. So this is what it's doing. It's more capital efficiency for liquidity providers to get to earn more fees by providing liquidity in that range that you're comfortable with. Then the good thing for the traders is that you get less slippage. Because as I mentioned above, when you have a very you, you have a very strong depth or very deep liquidity for this range, then your large trade will have less slippage because the large trade is proportionally smaller when the liquidity pool is huge. The third one is price discovery. So I think this is quite good as well because now we get, now we are combining central limit order books with decentralized exchanges and sophisticated traders can be providing liquidity to specific ranges and there are some ranges that you can techni technically have no liquidity because nobody is going to trade die for two, two USDC because it's too expensive and so there will, there will technically be no liquidity there. Then you know that 
that's what that's what price discovery is about. Because in market efficiency, or when market aggregates information together, the market doesn't price USDC at two dollars worth when USDC is really only worth one dollar. So that's a way to understand price discovery and a way to expand price discovery because not only are you just trading with with the the contract itself, you're able to trade, you're able to dictate what segments or what range you want to trade at. And as a trader, for instance, I'm I might not be a sophisticated um, investor and I don't understand a lot of information that I didn't research on. But some someone else does that, and they they are only provide they provide liquidity within a specific range that I didn't realize. So that gives me more information, and I can go and read more about the things that I need to research about. So that's a very interesting way for price discovery. Number four, range orders. So as I mentioned, you can provide range. You can provide a specific range that you want to provide liquidity to, and the. The thing is that you will only be providing liquidity in this range. How do they stop you from? How do they stop you from providing, not providing liquidity in other places? Well, the mechanism works like this. So let's say I've got ETH and Lisa tokens in the pool, and I'm providing within this specific range. And when the range goes out of out of the when the price goes out of the range then one of my assets will be completely liquidated to turn into the, the other asset. So for example, there's ETH and there's Lisa. ETH goes out of range and all the ETH will be liquidated and changed to Lisa tokens. And so in, now I will hold everything in Lisa tokens. So that's what happens when you go out of range. So it auto-liquidates your position. Number five, it has non-fungible liquidity. So the positions, the liquidity, the liquidity providers (LP), the positions are non are now non-fungible. Why? Because remember, I can only I want to provide liquidity only within specific ranges. So because of that, then my liquidity, my LP tokens for the Lisa ETH pool will be different from your Lisa ETH pool LP tokens because we're providing liquidity for dif at different ranges. We will receive different kind of tokens transactions. So it's non-fungible and it's an NFT, which is also quite useful because maybe in the future we can use that LP tokens as collateral to be borrowing against in other protocols. So that will be fun to learn. So if you think about how does it look like in the token itself or in the, the graph, let's say this is the entire graph and then you have a specific range where LPA, LPB, LPC has, is providing liquidity there. There's another range where LP, C, D, E, F, G, H are providing liquidity there. Then there's another range where LP, A to LP, J provides liquidity there. So that's like the general prices that it's being traded at. And then there's a range that people are not trading at. Then there's a small range that people might be trading at again. So different people own different parts of the pool, different parts of the curve, and they, their, liquid, their LP tokens will be worth differently. They, mainly they're worth differently, because they will receive tokens or they receive transaction fees differently. So that brings to point number six, flexible fees. How can we, how can the system incentivize liquidity providers to be taking on more risk, which means to be providing liquidity at the end? You have to think from the perspective of Uniswap. As a protocol, I want to provide a lot of liquidity at different ranges so that anyone gets to, gets to trade. But some pools or some liquidity, it's, it's not very attractive. 
and nobody's really going to trade there. But I still want to provide that liquidity because me as a platform, that's my value add. That my value add is that I'm always allowing people to trade at any price. So to do that, you, they can, you can customize your fees. You can do it at 5 basis point or 0.05%, 30 basis point, which is 0.3% or 1%. So you get to choose the fees. And the fees can change depending on the risk taken. So for example, when things are super volatile, then you want to incentivize the liquidity, liquidity providers to be providing liquidity into the pool. And you can compensate them with customizing a higher fees that's given to them. So this is also good because you're basically compensating the LP for taking risk. Also, when it's more volatile, your risk of your impermanent loss risk is also higher. And so that's where you, you want to compensate them from taking that risk. So for example, the USDC versus DAI pool will have a much lower risk because it's not that volatile versus the, the ETH and DAI pool because ETH could change quite, ETH could be quite volatile. So that's how you, that's, for example, those two different pools will have different kind of fee structure. And lastly, they're improving in oracles. If you look at a lot of different protocols out there, the DeFi protocols, you realize that a lot of them are using Uniswap as the oracle, the price oracle for their projects. For example, stablecoins or governance tokens. It's Uniswap as an oracle is the price input for a lot of protocols. So because of that, it's looking to improve the price input or improve the oracle. So previously, it was the total weighted average price on a per second basis to protocols. Today, you're able to compute them up to about nine days. And because it's built on ETH version two, it's a lot cheaper to, to find that cost as well. So it means that it's a lot cheaper, it's more accurate and a lot cheaper to be transacting when you're using, when you're using Uniswap as the price oracle. So what are some opinions on version three? Firstly, do note that I'm talking about the opinions of the protocol, not the Uniswap token or not the Uni token at all. You realize that everything I've talked about so far, there's nothing much to do with the uni token. It's all about find, getting the system to be more efficient. It's about allowing, getting different incentives to pro liquidity providers and incentivizing liquidity providers. But I didn't mention anything about the uni token because I want to really focus on the protocol itself. So firstly, I think it's good that they're combining the central limit order vote together with the decentralized exchange because it's a lot more, it's a, it gives people a lot more flexibility in management. So I only want to provide between this specific range and, but because I want, I want to have that, that freedom to choose the price that I want to be providing liquidity at. At the same time, I also want to, I want trade to be easier where you're always trading with the protocol where you're always trading with the, the contract, the, the code. So that's good, and you're combining them together. Now, the, the problem or the difficulty thing is that you still require active management because, for example, if ETH prices shoot up too high and against the Lisa tokens, and then think the Lisa to, the, the ETH tokens, or let's say I'm only providing the range between a specific range, and then all my, all my ETH will be liquidated and changed to Lisa tokens, and that, and if I don't want to be liquidated, if I know that that's, that's happening, then I need to actively manage my position or actively update my position, update the range that I want to trade at so that I don't, 
I don't lose out or I don't get completely liquidated and change the tokens to the other token. And that brings to the point of is impermanent loss greater or smaller than? Does this system improve the, the concept of impermanent loss? So it depends. If we are trading, if we're liquidating the asset for the other asset because it's trading out of range, then your impermanent loss is likely to be greater. Versus the if versus now you're able to choose the kind of range that you want to trade at, then you might have a smaller impermanent loss if you're actively managing your position. So active management is good and bad. It's good if you're, you're a day trader and you you know that's your job and you focus a lot on that. That's good. Then you're actively managing your position. You're actively finding ways to reduce impermanent loss. But for a lot of other people, we're not traders. We don't trade, and you want to you want to make sure that you still have your position. You don't get liquidated unnecessarily. So that's where your impermanent loss could be much greater. And lastly, capital efficiency. I think in capital efficiency, we can divide this into two categories, also relating to the active management. So you have the the wheels. I think the wheels in general are usually the more sophisticated investors, your VCs, your funds, your very, very rich individual versus your retail guys, the general mom and pop guys, the people exploring and experimenting with DeFi. So with sophisticated investors, this is amazing because now you have, you can build in risk management, you can, you can focus on capital efficiency, you can focus on price discovery, you can focus on providing liquidity at a specific range, and you can focus on managing your position. So that's great. That's actually very capital efficient. Second, on the retail side, I think it might be a bit challenging because you have to actively manage your position or you get liquidated. And it might be capital efficient in the perspective of providing liquidity for that range. I think it will still be quite limited in the sense that if, was, if it's for stable coins, you can just put your money there, you can define your range unless something really bad happens. It's pretty safe. But for other volatile assets, like new, new assets or other assets that fluctuate in prices, it's going to be a little bit more challenging. And to focus on capital efficiency means you have to focus a lot more on the other aspect, the other sophisticated technical analysis and fundamental analysis that requires a little bit more time, a lot more time actually. And it might be capital efficient, but it might not be time efficient. So that's the general conclusion of Uniswap version 3. I think it's a great improvement. I think it's also more targeted towards the institutional side. I think it's beautiful that we can start defining all of these things in code and keep improving the system and keep innovating. I think this is also where we start to see the divide between institutions versus retail guys because there is a disparity between the kind of sophisticated knowledge required to keep maintaining positions or to keep managing a risk. So that's something worthy to think about. And I hope that gives you more insights to what Uniswap version 3 is. Till then, I'll see you in the next episode. Bye!